listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. South Point, we have this annual sermon series, and we call it different things. We've called it Identity Series. We've called it We Are South Point. Um, but it's a time for us to just remind ourselves of who we are. There are people that have been here for all 16 years of our existence, and there are people that have been here for 16 minutes. And you may wonder what this church is about. So we take three weeks to talk about what we long for the heart of South Point to be like. Um, our objective is not to talk about building bigger buildings or gathering more money or trying to have more people. Certainly, we want to see people come to know Jesus Christ. Certainly, we want the church to grow like it did in the book of Acts. But we also want something to be transformed in the hearts of our people. And so what do we want the hearts of our people to look like? What do we want their uh, values to be from the inside out? And so this year, our identity series or our We Are South Point series is going to be focused on this phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. We get that from uh, the Apostles' Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, or we could say as opposed to on earth as it is in heaven, we could say in Locust Grove as it is in heaven, or in my life as it is in heaven. I mean, let's face it. People ought to walk in the door, and they ought to find a different spirit, a different atmosphere, different relationships, different conversations, uh, just a completely different dynamic when they walk into the body of Christ because we ought to be operating out of the strength and the energy and the power of heaven through the power of the Spirit. So what would it be like if you people walked in or if you woke up in the, in the morning and you were in heaven? What would heaven be like? How would you live? How would your life be different? And we want to uh, consider those things this morning. So in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Listen, if we can figure out what's going on in heaven, then we can figure out who we are supposed to be here on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. I think it's interesting as we listen to, as we read, as we are over-familiarized with the Lord's Prayer. Anywhere you go, you go to a football game, they're going to recite the Lord's Prayer. You go to the locker room, if you're a chaplain at, at a football game, everybody, all right, let's gather up. Now, the coach may have just given a long uh, profanity-filled you know, tirade on how they're going to just, just, just you know, kill the other team. Then they gather up, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we just, we just do that by rote. We hear it all the time. Most of us can recite the Lord's Prayer, but do we ever think about it? Do we ever think about what's happening in this prayer? 
The Lord's prayer or the apostles' prayer or the disciples' prayer is a longing for something different that doesn't currently exist. Do you hear that? There is a longing in our heart for something different. That's why why Jesus is saying, plead this way. Plead for things to be different. I want to know the Father in a way that I don't know him now. I want to be a part of a kingdom that I'm not a part of now. I want his will to be done because currently right now, I've made a big enough mess by doing my will. And I would really love to have a taste of heaven because what's going on on earth right now just really doesn't taste good. I would love to know this interaction with other people that wasn't based on my anger toward them or my bitterness toward them or their sin against me but me forgiving them. I would love to be able to relate to people on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. I would love to operate understanding the schemes of Satan. So I long for a place where I'm not led into temptation, but I'm delivered from evil. And so he's praying and teaching the disciples to pray this prayer that longs for something different. And here's what I want you to see before we uh, break down this text into four different parts. We must see and experience life from heaven's perspective. We want to release heaven that is in us here on earth while we are here, and we want those around us to experience what it's like to get a taste of heaven. So what happens when heaven comes to Locust Grove? Number one, when heaven comes to Locust Grove, we see God for who he is. We see that right at the beginning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We know things aren't the way they're supposed to be, but if they were, what would they look like and how would we be able to see them? If, if, if things were different or could be different, how would we be able to see them? Our eyes would have to be opened, and if they could be opened, the curtain could be pulled back, and we could see. So when we see God, and we see this in the text of Scripture, when we see God, He opens our eyes to see heaven. He opens our eyes to see things the way He intends for us to see them. Just a couple of verses to um, help us understand the, the, the concept of our eyes being open. First of all, we can go back to Luke 24 that we just studied last week, and as they were walking along the road to Emmaus, their eyes were closed, but then their eyes were opened, and then they saw things and heard things and experienced things and understood things that radically transformed their life. In Ephesians chapter 1, in verse number 18, it says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of which He has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So here is this concept of our eyes being opened. When we see God, our eyes should be opened when we see him for who he is. So so when heaven comes to earth, we're going to see God for who he is. And when heaven comes to earth, our eyes are going to be opened. Now, I want to go to to Luke, excuse me, I want to go to... um, Um, 2 Kings chapter 6, and I want you to see the difference between seeing the world from earth's perspective and seeing the world from heaven's perspective. We're looking at Elisha the prophet in 2 Kings Kings chapter 6, and particularly in verse number 17. There's There's this great threat and this great army 
And there are some things that people can't see, and there's some things that people can see. And in Second um, Kings chapter six and verse seventeen, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, "Alas, my master, what shall we do?" He said, "Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them." Then Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, please open the eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Assyrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. They were facing an army that could be seen with earthly eyes. But then when God opened the eyes of the servant that was with Elisha, all of a sudden he sees an army that he couldn't see before. In other words, here's this process of God opening our eyes to see life from heaven's perspective. I don't think anything states it any clearer than when we look at Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah saw the Lord, and when Isaiah saw the Lord, his eyes were opened to something that transcended what was going on in earth and took him directly to heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. So whatever's going on in heaven, I want to see it while I'm here on earth and experience it while I'm here on earth. Isaiah chapter 6. He tells us what's going on on earth. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, he speaks a mouthful when he says in the year that King Uzziah died because he's, he's understood what's going to happen politically when Uzziah died. He understood what's going to happen culturally when Uzziah died. He understood what was going to happen to Israel when Uzziah died because they had had a great run under Uzziah, but now Uzziah is gone and Israel is going to be vulnerable. And so Isaiah the prophet finds himself running into uh, the temple to pray, and while he prays in the year that King Uzziah died, that's the context. All of a sudden, rather than him worrying about everything that was happening politically and worrying about everything that was happening economically, all of a sudden he sees the Lord. I saw the Lord, and the Lord was sitting. He was just sitting. He was sitting on his throne. He was sitting in the place where he rules. And his throne was high and lifted up. And what was going on on earth was not lifted up higher than what was going on in heaven. Right? And when he saw the Lord seated on his throne ruling, he wasn't wringing his hands. What was happening on earth was not causing the throne of heaven to teeter or totter or lose its stability. While the world was falling apart, God was seated on his throne, what was going on in heaven is that everything was okay with God. Everything was okay with God. What we have a tendency to do oftentimes is exactly what Isaiah the prophet did. We take whatever is going on on earth and we move it to the center of our lives and we let that dominate and control our thinking and our values and our responses and our emotions and our senses. But uh, Isaiah immediately is transported into heaven and he's preoccupied with heaven and he sees heaven and everything's okay in 
heaven, the train of his road filled the temple, and he stood above the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This is power. This is unapproachable power. This is indomitable power. This is undefeatable power. It's interesting that in the presence of God, Isaiah saw himself. You see, when we see God for who he is, we see ourselves for who we are. And that's critically important in order, in order for us to understand on earth as it is in heaven, bringing heaven to earth. Notice Isaiah's response to seeing the Lord. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So here he is. He sees God for who he is, and he sees himself for who he is. And when he sees God for who he is in heaven, and he sees himself for who he is on earth, he understands from heaven's perspective that there's this great distance between him and God. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. In other words, the holy God in heaven who sees us in our sin and distance does everything that needs to be done through his redemptive work, through the atoning work of his son to bring us close into the presence of God, into heaven into heaven verse 8 and I heard the voice of the Lord saying whom shall I send and who will go for us and then I said here am I send me and he said go and say to this people keep on hearing but do not understand keep on seeing but do not perceive make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and he goes on to give this message to Isaiah, but the thing I want you to see about Isaiah is this. When we see the Lord for who he is, then our response becomes a response of humility. Did you hear that? You see, heaven comes to earth. Heaven comes to Locust Grove when we see God for who he is and when we see him for who he is and what he has done and our hearts are transformed by the power of heaven, then we as a people who are citizens of heaven, Philippians 3.20, become people who have hearts of humility. And that is so uh, counter to the world. It's interesting that in looking at this humility, we go all the way to the end of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66, and two of my favorite verses in all of, of the Bible. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, right? That's huge. That's huge. This thing that we're spinning around on, that's where God rests his feet. That's how huge God is. Heaven, and his, heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool. Now, you've got to understand the context here when he says this. You see, Israel's built this building, and they're, they're like, hey, where's God? God's over there. Where's God? He's in that building. He's in that temple. And God's like, whoa, 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 whoa. hold on, hold on, hold on. You're not going to put me in a shoebox in the temple over there. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. I, I am huge. I am massive. I am glorious. I am powerful. Notice what he says. What is this house that you would build for me? And what is 
the place of my rest. I wrote in the margins, God is not impressed with that which impresses us. Heaven is not impressed with our performance. Heaven is not impressed with the things that we build. God was not impressed with this um, 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 amazing ornate building that they had built that represented his presence. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. You think you build a place and I'm going to crawl into that little box over there? You think, you think that I'm impressed with your performance? You think that I'm impressed with your earthly works? You think that I'm impressed with your value system that reflects the values of earth? No, God's like, no. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things come to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. A transformed heart, if you want to have a heart that has been in heaven, that has been close to God, that, that has been transformed by the power of the gospel, that has had the coal placed on your, your lips so that there can be atoning work that you don't do yourself, what that does in the heart of the redeemed person is it produces the spirit of humility. And the spirit of humility changes everything about how we relate. So we see in the text that when we are moved to humility, we're moved out of our senses into a new value system. You see, our, our senses are constantly responding to stimuli around us here on earth, right? Our senses are responding in fear. Our senses are responding in anger. Our senses are responding in frustration. Our senses are responding in bitterness. Our senses are responding in pride, that's earthly. But when Isaiah found himself in the presence of God, there was something that radically transformed him from the inside out. And his heart was now not a heart that was constantly responding to the stimuli around him. But there was this flow coming out of him that was produced by God alone. And what it looked like was humility. What it looked like was humility. When we see God for who he is, how do we respond? See, many of us, when we see God, our response is, I want to be great. I want to be famous. I want to be polished. I want to be known. I want to be accomplished. I want to be significant. I want to be popular. Those are, those are the descriptions of most people in church and church leaders today. That's what we want. How do we respond? Many times we want to be an apologist or a professor or a theologian or a preacher or a discernment blogger. That's really popular today. The discernment bloggers are off the chain, by the way. I hope that's not where you're getting all your information from. We want to be important. Those are not the values of heaven. When we experience God for who he is, we respond in humility. We respond in surrender. We respond in availability. Whatever you want from me, God. The currency of Satan is pride. The currency of our flesh is our senses. But when we see God's humility toward God and everybody else in this world becomes our operating system. Heaven comes to earth when we see God for who he is. And when we see God for who he is, we worship him in humility. But we also navigate life's relationships in humility. That's how we know heaven has come to earth. Secondly, when heaven comes to earth, not only do we see God for who he is, 
our Father which art in heaven. But we see Satan for who he is as well. Go back to the disciples' prayer, Matthew chapter 6, if you will. Verse 13, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or deliver us from the evil one. We see Satan for who he is. We've got to understand that, that evil is hunting us. There is an enemy that wants to destroy us. Jesus had his interaction with Peter in Luke chapter 22, and he says, he says, Satan has desired you that he might sift you as sweet, but he said, I have prayed for you. Satan is active. He goes about as a roaring lion seeking, who, seeking whom he may devour. When Paul gets through the whole section on the spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6, he closes it out by saying, and praying with all Prayer. Why? Because there is a real enemy who comes to steal and kill and destroy. Satan will come to us in Genesis 3 and offer, offer us alternatives to heaven's beauty. And Satan says, I have something more beautiful. I have something more pleasurable. I have something more liberating. He did the same thing to the Son of God in Matthew chapter 4 and verses 1 to 11 when he came to Jesus and he took him to these different places and made him all of these offers saying, would you please accept what I'm offering you instead of, instead of taking heaven's offer? Satan, filled with pride, deemed himself superior to God, worthy of the glory that belonged to God alone. And since... He can't, in his pride, be the center of heaven. Satan will be the enemy of heaven. And he is working to be the center of our lives, and he is working to deceive. He's here on earth. Satan is dominating on earth. Job chapter 1 and verse number 7. Where have you been? I've been walking all over the earth, up and down and to and fro, and I've been examining all the people on the earth, and, and I've, I'm bringing this one guy, Job, to you. And Job, you think is heavenly-minded, but you let me get a hold of him down here on earth, and I'll show you what Job's made of. Job won't be so heavenly-minded. Satan is working here on earth. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 1 to 3. Tell us about Satan's work here on earth. John chapter 12 and verse number 31 also mentions his role here on this planet. Satan wants to convince you right now in this moment that earth is superior to heaven. Satan wants to convince you right now in this moment to live for earth and not for heaven. When heaven comes to earth, earth will not like it. When heaven comes to earth, it puts us in conflict with earth's, earth's value system and Satan is going to lead the charge. Satan wants you to love this world. Satan wants you to love this world. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. And he wants you to love life as defined by this world. When heaven comes to Locust Grove, we will see God for who he is and we'll respond in humility. When heaven comes to Locust Grove, we will see Satan for who he is. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in, in a minute from the the marker board here because quite honestly most of how we live and how we respond is out of earth's values and not out of heaven's values because our lives are immersed on earth and completely miss heaven but we want our life to be lived on earth as it is in heaven thirdly thirdly and this is where we come to Ephesians chapter 1 
verses 3 to 14. Number one, when heaven comes to Locust Grove, we see God for who he is. Secondly, we see Satan for who he is. Thirdly, we see ourselves for who we are. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 3. Let's go to heaven for a minute. Let's listen to what heaven says about us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's heaven. That's heaven. Someone told me this week about a conversation they had in their life group, and they said, imagine, imagine what life would be like if I lived in these spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So just stop right there. Imagine what life would be like if you lived in these spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Let me give you something a little easier. Imagine what life would be like if you'd won that billion-dollar lottery. Ah. Now something's turning, right? First thing you said is, I would tithe off of it. And I'm like, praise God, <laughs> right? No more problems. It's a whole lot easier to imagine, use our imagination for something that is on the earth as opposed to imagine or begin to thinking about what heaven says about who we are. But, but as we look at the text, listen to what it says. This is who we are, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of his works, all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him and believed in him. We're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's what's going on in heaven. That's how we are seen if we are in Christ in heaven. If we're on earth, go to, go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But now he goes back to heaven. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses again, made us in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in 
heaven, the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works to which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We will see ourselves for who we are. Now, I, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Um, who, who, does the, who does the accuser say that I am? Anybody? Does anybody hear the, the voice of Satan speaking to you in your head? Does, not worthy, okay? Anybody else? Not good enough. Not good enough. Anybody else? I can't hear it. Say it again. Okay. Okay. We're our own God. Did I, did I hear him right? Okay. We're our own God. Anybody else? Help. Say it again. Okay. Despised, rejected. Okay, we're enough on our own. Anybody else? Alone. Who does the accuser say that I am? Just an animal? Okay. Okay. What's she saying? Okay, 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 I'll, I'll try to fig figure it out later. Um, it's okay, guys, everything's good. You hear the voice of the accuser, because he's operating out of Earth's value system. Who does the accuser say that I am? We've got, we've got to understand, for, for example, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, um, I'm, I'm stupid, I'm an idiot. Satan's constantly coming at us in, in generally with voices from the past that, that cause us to self-identify, but also cause us to react strongly. You see, the essence of Satan in heaven was this, that he was beautiful. And his reaction to heaven's response was, they don't see me for all of my beauty and my significance and my power and my value. And his reaction was then to respond with anger and bitterness and frustration. And he became the enemy of God by choice. So the accuser comes to us and says, and this is what creates friction many times in church, people don't see me for who I really am. People don't value me for who I really am. People don't understand what I'm worth. And the accuser, if he can work into that, he can then generate a response, a response of self-justification, a response of demeaning others. There are all kinds of things that go into us relating to one another here on the face of this planet. But it begins with the accuser telling us who 
We are. And us responding to the accuser's accusations in a way that is consistent with his will and his desire for us so that it generates this attitude not only in our heart toward ourselves, but in our heart toward others. But then we go to Ephesians chapter 1. Who does, who does heaven say that I am? First of all, let me say from Ephesians chapter 1 that, that the, the invitation to believe the gospel is an invitation to see the beauty of Christ. Satan saw his beauty and wanted to be worshipped, but he was to be used as one that was to point to others to worship God. Ultimately, our worship should be of Christ and Christ alone. And so there is this invitation to be who Christ has made us to be based on his finished work and his beauty. But when we look at Ephesians chapter 1, who does it say, who does heaven say that we are? Anybody? What do you see in the text? Excuse me? Blessed in Christ. Worthy. Chosen. Redeemed. Anybody else? Forgiven. Okay. Forgiven. Okay. Predestined. Don't hold me accountable for my spelling. Okay, belonging, not alone. So as we look at the text of Scripture, who does heaven say that I am? When we look at Ephesians chapter 2, who does heaven say that I am? Then the question for us becomes, where, where are you living? Are you living in heaven or on earth? And I would suggest to you that most of us who say that we are Christians find ourselves living on earth find ourselves completely bypassing what heaven says about who we are and what heaven says about who those around us are. When heaven comes to earth, we see God for who he is. When heaven comes to earth, we see Satan for who he is. When heaven comes to earth, we see ourselves for who we are. And I'm just scratching the surface. You see... There are those of you right now that would say, no, that's not me, 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 that's not me. You would say, this is me. This is me, this is me, this is me. There are those of you that sit in this room right now, and you may be, you may be married to a husband or a wife with a house full of kids, but you feel completely alone. You feel completely alone. You feel like nobody understands you. You feel like nobody cares about you. You feel like, man, if I died today, it wouldn't matter to anybody. You feel completely alone. We've got all of these identities that are over here. And they're identities that the enemy has given us. And every time we live out of this identity, we are agreeing with Satan. We're denying who Christ says that we are. And we're choosing to stay in this place called earth where we can protect ourselves, where we can control, where we can manipulate, where we can take all of these negative things that are going on inside of us and use them as leverage and feel like they give us some sense of power. 
when Christ has called us to freedom. Christ has invited us into something that's completely different. And by the way, the thing that Christ has invited us into is what our heart ultimately longs for. So he invites us today to be who we are in him. Third, fourthly and finally, and this is where heaven is put on display in the body of Christ. When heaven comes to Locust Grove, we see God for who he is. We see Satan for who he is. We see ourselves for who we are. And fourthly, we see others for who they are. We see others for who they are in Christ. You say, oh, I knew that guy was a snake. That's right, I got the gift of discernment. I can, I can tell that guy's a crook. I knew, I knew he really didn't have a need. He was holding up that sign because of his mother. That, that's not what I'm talking about. We don't see others for their offense against us, right? I, I, I love Ephesians chapter 4 and, and verse 25. Listen, listen to this redeemed mindset. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So where there is anger, don't let it continue. Don't let it fester. Resolve it now and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fit as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away along with all malice. And that is in the context of relationship. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It not only changes who we are, but it, it changes how we see other people and how we relate to them. And, and again, you say, how in the world do you get that out of, out of, uh, out of the, the Lord's, the disciples' prayer? I'm sorry, I call it the Lord's prayer. Bad habit. I know it's not cool, but it's just a really bad habit I got. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So when heaven comes to earth, there will be this place where Forgiveness is the method of relating to one another. That's why when we come to the closest and most foundational of relationships here on the face of the planet, marriage in Ephesians 5, the call is for the husband. Now, a lot of you guys love that submit part, and that's not even addressed to you. You, you don't have any place to come and tell your wife to submit to you. The Lord is dealing with her on that. And don't get in his way. <laughs> don't get in his way. Uh, you, you'll, you'll, you'll get messed up if you do. Let the Lord do his work in that respect. But he's like, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How? How should you die for your wife? Well, you need to point out what she's doing wrong. You need to make sure she, she doesn't uh, burn the toast or serve the rice clumpy. Or especially the grits clumpy. Amen? 
You need to tell her she needs to make the grits like mama made the grits. You need to, she needs to call your mama and get your mama's recipe for biscuits, right? No, you don't, you don't do that. You love your wife and you're willing to die for your wife and you're willing to give yourself up for your wife. So we see this relationship where th- there are these people that are modeling the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's this great forgiveness. Many of us walk in this room today. Listen to me carefully. Angry, bitter, frustrated, hurt, shamed, rejected, sinned against, wanting revenge, wanting to get even, self-justifying. Now those are just words. But every one of those words has a name and a face. Did you hear me? Let me say it again. Many of you walked in today angry, bitter, frustrated, hurt, shamed, rejected, sinned against, desiring revenge, wanting to get even, self-justifying, determined nobody's ever going to do that to me again. Nobody's going to talk to me like that again. And every one of these words has a name and a face that occupies space in your brain rent-free. And your earthly heart says, get even. And heaven cries back, I already did. Your earthly heart says, get even. Our get even spirit is seen in our face, in our blood vessels. It's felt in our blood pressure. Get even. Get even. Jesus said, I already did. What does that mean? That means I can move towards someone that has offended me greatly. That means I can move towards someone that has sinned. That means I can move to someone towards someone that I'm, I look at them and I'm like, what is wrong with you? And I move toward them because Christ has died and paid the penalty for their even legitimate offense against me. And now I move toward them as if I'm in heaven. You know the thing that makes South Point look like heaven and not earth? It's how we relate to the Father and how we relate to one another. And if you have believed the gospel and you are resting your hope in Christ and Christ alone, I'm calling on you this morning to let heaven tell you how we should view and see others. If you walked in today with a list of offenses against you, that's not heaven. That's earth. When heaven comes to Locust Grove, we see God for who he is. We see Satan for who he is. We see ourselves for who we are. And we see others for who they are. Just by way of 
application. Let me encourage you this morning to pray. That's, that's the Lord's prayer. There is something, listen to me, there, I don't care how messed up you are in sin, there is something inside of you that longs for something better. And that thing that your heart ultimately longs for that is better is Christ. It's heaven. Pray. Secondly, see. Pray that God would open your eyes this morning. To be able to drive down the road in traffic, I got behind somebody this morning that was talking to somebody on the phone, and the speed limit was 45, and they couldn't maintain it. And I had to go to the house of God, right? And I didn't see heaven anywhere near any of that. It was all earth. It was all earth. Pray that God would open your eyes to see what he might be doing, to see what the Spirit of God might be doing in any given situation or circumstance. So pray and see and study Scripture and memorize Scripture and meditate on Scripture and be stable like that man in Psalm 1 who I think is Jesus. And as we study and memorize and meditate on Scripture, we understand the beauty of heaven scripturally. We understand the schemes of Satan scripturally. And we understand who we are supernaturally. And we understand how to navigate the relationships that we face here in the kingdom of heaven with only with the beauty that only heaven could reveal. I would call on you to believe this morning. Believe the good news but I would also call on you this morning to relate, to relate to one another as relationships are supposed to be in heaven. And I would also call on you by the way that you live and by the way that you relate, I would call on you to invite others into heaven's relational beauty, which is rooted in Christ and Christ alone. I would call on you to go to those that you talk to and invite them to the one that their heart longs for which is Jesus Christ. We must see earth and experience life from heaven's perspective.